Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London School of Economics. I'm Shevket Pamuk, Chair in Contemporary Turkish Studies at the European Institute here at LSE. The Turkish Chair organizes seminars and conferences and promotes research on contemporary Turkey. In addition to other events, we organize every year two lectures on Turkey jointly with the Turkish program at the School of Oriental and African Studies of the University of London. That program is led by my good friend Ben Fortna, who is with us this evening. One of these joint events takes place in the fall at LSE, and the other one is hosted by SOAS in the winter. Texts of these lectures have been published in the leading academic journal on Turkey, New Perspectives on Turkey, which is now being published jointly with the LSE Turkish Chair. I am especially pleased that the, this evening's debate is organized jointly with the Turkish program at SOAS and New Perspectives on Turkey whose editors are also with us this evening. We have this evening two leading academic economists today to debate the experience of Turkey with neoliberal policies since 1980. Both Professor Fikret Şenses of Middle East Technical University at Ankara and Professor Asaf Savaş Akat of Istanbul Bilgi University have written and published extensively on the Turkish economy since the 1980s. I would like to add that both of our distinguished speakers are also linked to LSE. Asaf Savaş Akat spent a year here as a postdoc in the 1970s, and Fikret Şenses received his PhD degree from the economics department at LSE in 1980. I thought it might be useful for me to say a few words before I leave the floor to our speakers. As you know, GDP or GDP per capita is one of the basic indicators for economic performance. It has its problems, and it is best to use it, with, obviously, with other indicators. But it, it is often a good place to begin. So I have prepared a, a few slides to offer you a quick perspective of, on the performance of the Turkish economy over the last 30 years. Well, let's see. Okay. Now, you can see here that uh, in the six decades since the end of World War II, Turkish economy has been growing 
roughly at world average rates, a little above world average rates, both in the uh, 1950-1980 period and also since 1980. Um, the world economic growth has slowed down after 1980, and so did Turkish economic growth. And one other um, observation here is that uh, the gap between the developed countries of Western Europe and the United States on the one hand and Turkey on the other has not really closed during these, well, during most of this period. And perhaps there has been some clo uh, closing of the gap only in the last decade. I have here, again, some basic comparisons between Turkey and other developing countries. You, in the period before 1980, in the import substituting industrialization period or in the Bretton Woods era, the, the economic performance of the developing countries was quite similar. You can see here in that first column, the growth rates are quite close to each other. And Turkey did a little better than the average of for the developing countries as a whole. Since 1980, there has been a good deal of divergence within the developing economies. You can see Asia has been doing very well. On the other hand, the other developing countries, the developing regions, Middle East, Africa, and South America have not done as well. And Turkey is basically placed in between those groups. Turkey's long-term rates of growth are not as high, are certainly not as high as those in Asia, but they are better than those in Africa, Middle East, and South America. And uh, Turkey's averages in the last, this last period are below those for developing countries as a whole. And one important reason for that is the developing country averages have been pulled up in the recent period because of the strong performance of China and India. These, are, these averages are population weighted. Quickly, one uh, important aspect of this, these recent decades for Turkey has been the rather varying perform economic performance. 1980s witnessed some growth, but the 1990s was a period of frequent crisis, a good deal of political and economic instability, and then growth or these moderate rates of growth, moderate to moderately high rates of growth, resumed in the last decade. Finally, I want to, to offer you two slides about fluctuations in the Turkish economy over the last 30 years. What I have here is 
fluctuations in the rate of growth, not of GDP per capita, but total GDP. And you can see here that for the period since World War II, a negative growth rates or contractions or economic crises were the exception in the earlier period. They were, they were very rare events. There was one in the early 50, 1954, and then there was another crisis at the end of the 70s. But in the, the more recent period, since 1980, fluctuations became more frequent, and again, there were three different crises, economic crises, um, both due to internal and external reasons during the 1990s. Here I have them in more detail. And you can see that, well, even in the last, and then finally in our, the last decade, we have the uh, negative growth in the year 2009 due to the current global crisis. Now, I would like to leave the floor to our speakers, and we will begin with Fikret Chances. We're going to give 20 minutes each to each of our speakers, and then they will follow with 8 to 10 minutes each, and then we'll open the floor to questions. Fikret, please. Good evening. Uh, Professor uh, Pamuk uh, forgot to say that when I got my PhD, uh, I was only 10 years of uh, age. Uh, so time flies uh, very quickly. Uh, now, uh, mine will be a very uh, formal uh, presentation. Uh, my objective uh, today is to provide an overall assessment of Turkey's economic performance since 1980. My presentation consists of four parts. In the first part, I shall present the salient features of Turkish economic development since 1980. In the second part, I shall broadly evaluate economic performance since 1980 on the basis of main economic and social indicators. I shall devote the third part to draw attention to the main fragilities and problem areas of the economy. Finally, in the fourth part, which I shall present in the second round, I shall make some observations pertaining to the future course of the economy and make some recommendations. The introduction of neoliberal economic policies in early 1980 has represented by far the most radical transformation of economic policies. During the past 30 odd years, outward-oriented and market-based policies have penetrated into almost all aspects of economic and social life. Let me start with the first part of my presentation on the salient futures of Turkish economic development since 1980 to put us in perspective in understanding this period. I would like to classify these under 10 headings. One, just before the introduction of the neoliberal program in January 1980, there were important by-elections 
which led to the resignation of the government in office. The new government, which was a minority government, introduced the program weeks after it came to power. Although economic issues were at center stage during the heated election campaign, there was no hint of a new program. The fact that the new program caught the Turkish people unawares says a great deal of the undemocratic nature of the program and, and was a harbinger of later developments. Two, the program was faced with a great deal of opposition right from the outset. When the government was about to lose its support in parliament, there was a military takeover, which immediately declared its support to the program. The military government, which stayed in power until late 1983, by silencing all opposition through repressive measures, played a crucial role in the sustainability of the program in its early years. Three, another key factor which contributed to the program's prominence was the external support it received from the IMF and the World Bank. Turkey was one of the first testing grounds of the joint World Bank-IMF approach which came to be known as the Washington Consensus. This has entailed the cancellation of industrial projects, price reform, trade and financial liberalization, and at a later stage, privatization of state economic enterprises. The World Bank and IMF, which nowadays champion such concepts as good governance, did not have any scruples in collaborating with a highly repressive military regime. The setting in which the program was put into action has had far-reaching connotations for the development of democracy in Turkey. Four, Turkey's neoliberal transformation gained a new momentum towards the end of 1983. The so-called structural reforms undertaken during this period were implemented before short-term stabilization was achieved. One wonders why Bretton Woods institutions ignored the influential literature so dear to them on the timing and sequencing of structural reforms which advise stabilization first, then other reforms. This neglect was no doubt partly responsible for the long period of high and variable inflation and the subsequent deep economic crises. Five, the decision to liberalize the capital account in 1989 was taken before an appropriate regulatory framework was put into place. This has been a major factor behind the speculative hot money flows, high real rates of interest, and the deep economic crisis in 1994 and in 2000 and 2001 with devastating socioeconomic effects. One wonders again why the Bretton Woods institutions have failed to provide adequate warning against such premature steps. Can we develop a new concept, international institution failure, to supplement market failure and government failure? Six, neoliberalism since the early 1980s has been dominated by a heavy preoccupation with short-term issues. While short-term changes in interest rates, exchange rates, and other financial indicators have constituted part of daily lives, Issues with strong medium and long-term connotations, such as investment, saving, industrialization, unemployment, and income distribution, have been relegated very much to the background. Seven, economic policies during much of the neoliberal period have been under the strong influence and even direction of the IMF and the World Bank, 
and especially after the mid-1990s, the European Union. This was instrumental in weakening domestic policy-making capabilities. Eight, the neoliberal period has witnessed the sharp withdrawal of the state from the economic sphere and the denial of the developmental role of the state. The state lost control of instruments such as interest rates, exchange rates, foreign trade policy, state economic enterprises, and public sector banking. This, together with Turkey's commitments to international institutions, has meant a sharp narrowing of the policy space. Nine, efforts to understand economic performance since 1980 should also take into account three exogenous factors. First, the Marmara earthquake in 1999 affected a large area in the industrial heartland with devastating human and material costs. Second, the Kurdish problem and insistence to solve it through military means have aggravated the burden of military expenditures on the economy. Third, crises in other emerging economies in the 1990s and the recent, or should we say the current, financial crisis in 2008 in the centers of capitalism have not, no doubt left their mark on the economy. Ten, neoliberalism was also instrumental in transforming the morality base of society towards extreme individualism. The collapse of the socialist system and the declining interest in development issues in the industrialized world have no doubt contributed to this process. These developments were echoed in Turkey by the slogan, there is no alternative. In the second part of my presentation, I shall broadly assess Turkey's economic performance under neoliberalism under uh, four different bases. The first one is the off-sided counterfactual. If Turkey did not make the transition to neoliberalism, what would have been the outcome? The common answer to that would be total disaster, because in the face of a severe balance of payments problem, Turkey's old model just before the transition was indeed no longer sustainable. But another counterfactual is possible here. What would Turkey's performance, in particular its level of industrialization, have been if the substantial external resources most notably from the IMF and the World Bank, that came Turkey's way to support the neoliberal program were made available to support its import substitution drive in intermediate and capital goods. The second basis on which economic performance under neoliberalism can be evaluated is to compare this period with the period immediately preceding it on the basis of main economic indicators. The average annual rate of growth of GDP per capita during the 1980-2002 period, 2010 period, which is the neoliberal era, was 2.3%, which was below the 3.1% achieved during the 1950-1980 period. 1990s, in particular, was characterized by poor performance, deserving the title of the lost decade. There was rapid growth after the 2001 crisis before its interruption by the global financial crisis. However, this was by and large driven by short-term financial flows from the then buoyant world capital markets. 
The current upsurge in growth is domestic demand-driven and concentrated largely on services rather than directly producing sectors such as manufacturing and agriculture. The record of neoliberal economic policies does not present a more optimistic picture when we look at the pattern of structural change. Turkey achieved rapid industrialization and high rates of growth during the 1963-1977 period. Not as high as those achieved by some of the East Asian countries, but still surpassing those achieved by Latin American countries. In contrast, the most important change under neoliberalism has been the sharp rise in the share of services at the expense of agriculture, while the share of manufacturing has been almost stagnant. The fact that services now account for nearly two-thirds of GDP is an indicator of the financialization, as well as the informalization of the economy on low productivity, low-wage activities. The lack of structural change was evident also from the structure of employment with services and agriculture together accounting for 75% of the total. On the inflation front too, the record of the neoliberal period compares unfavorably with the previous period. The average rate of inflation since 1980 has reached 51%, which was more than three times the level during the 1963-1979 period. More recently, there has been a sharp reduction in the rate of inflation reaching single digits. We must note, however, that it is high, it is still high by international comparisons and showing signs of acceleration. The third basis for assessing Turkish economic performance under neoliberalism would be to compare it with the performance of other countries. Since Professor Pamuk has dealt with this issue, I shall just emphasize the main uh, points. Uh, Turkey's per capita GDP growth during 1980 to uh, 2010 in the neoliberal period was slightly below the developing country's average and was also below the performance of middle-income countries. Its investment rate and especially the domestic saving rate have also lagged behind the middle-income countries. When comparison is made with high-performing countries such as China, India, and Korea, the gap becomes much wider. Turkey lags behind the high-performing economies also in terms of its ability to bring about structural change in labor force and towards manufacturing. In terms of the Human Development Index published by the UNDP, Turkey ranks 83rd out of 169 countries. The fourth and final basis of assessing performance under neoliberalism is to compare the promises of the neoliberal model with the actual outcome. Academic studies of the 1970s, such as the seminal study of Little Skrotovsky Scott, which were highly influential in the transition to the neoliberal model, were highly optimistic in their expectation that the new model would yield much better performance. Their expectations involved, amongst others, a rise in saving and investment rates, increased momentum in growth, employment, industrialization, and exports, improved income distribution, the reduction of corruption and rent-seeking arising from administrative controls, and the removal of bias against agriculture. Let us briefly look at each one of these promises. As I have already shown, in terms of growth, the record of neoliberalism compared unfavorably with the earlier period, 
and was accompanied by a lack of structural change in production and employment. There wasn't a marked improvement in saving and investment rates either. Increased attractiveness of speculative financial instruments has meant the diversion of domestic savings away from investment in real sectors. The rate of employment growth during the neoliberal period, especially in manufacturing, fell even below the rates attend, uh, attained in the earlier period. Growth elasticity of employment was less than 0.2 during the past 10 years. Jobless growth emerged as a part of everyday jargon. By most accounts, income distribution has worsened under neoliberalism. Even official statistics show that it lies between low inequality East Asian countries and the high inequality Latin American ones, but much closer to Latin America. Functional income distribution has worsened sharply, confirming the pro-capital nature of neoliberal policies. The record of the neoliberal period was not any better in terms of corruption and rent-seeking. Fictitious exports to take advantage of export incentives in the 1980s were followed by big banking scandals and privatization-related cronyism. They have provided ample reason to believe that rent-seeking and corruption only changed form and, if anything, became more widespread. Likewise, agriculture, deprived of much of government support, has emerged as a major loser under neoliberalism. The neoliberal model was most successful in the sphere of exports, removing the export pessimism of the earlier period. Rapid growth in exports was accompanied by market diversification and a sharp change in their structure towards manufactured goods. One should note, however, in this performance, enter enterprises established under the earlier import substitution period have also played an important role. To summarize, the neoliberal model, after more than three decades of uninterrupted implementation, has, with the possible exception of export growth, dismally failed to fulfill its promises, failed to match the performance of the successful emerging economies, and perhaps more significantly, the performance of the previous import substitution strategy. Moreover, the economy is confronted with a number of formidable problems pertaining to its future course. In the third part of my presentation, I shall briefly touch upon some of these under five headings. First, the current account deficit is at an alarming level, expected to reach about 10% of GDP this year. With imports growing much faster than exports, sizable foreign trade deficit is the main culprit here. The share of high technology products is very low, around 2%. Some estimates put it a little higher. Moreover, exports have become highly dependent on imports. This is analogous to the high import dependence of production and new investment on imports under import substituting industrialization. The current account deficit may worsen if there is another spurt in oil prices given Turkey's high dependence on oil imports. Low level of agricultural productivity is another problem area. Large intersectoral productivity differentials explain the pattern of income distribution, the pace of rural-urban migration, and the state of the labor market. Research and development expenditure, which is necessary to boost industrialization, especially in skill and technology-intensive categories, is still very low, representing only 0.6% of GDP. Yeah,
The labor market still presents by far the most complex set of issues. Population growth, although falling, still exerts formidable supply side pressures. Labor supply has grown at an annual average rate of 1.1% during the past decade, despite a low participation rate, especially for women in urban areas. Employment creation, especially in manufacturing, falls far short of coping with these formidable supply side pressures. It is doubtful whether agriculture can continue to absorb much labor given the problems it faces. Acceleration of migration to urban areas would further test the capacity of urban service sectors to act as employment of last resort. The extent of slack in labor market is in alarming proportions. Unemployment rate 10%, a lot of underemployment, discouraged workers, etc. Uh, <clears throat> neoliberal economic policies in force for more than 30 years have left their mark also on income distribution and poverty. The erosion of equality of opportunity is most visible in the spheres of health and education, which are increasingly subjected to market forces. Uh, privatization was accompanied by deunionization of the labor force, rapid deunionization. Uh, there are sharp regional inequalities in income distribution as well as in access to public services. Functional income distribution, we have data on this, is strongly tilted towards non-wage components. For example, in 2010, real wages in manufacturing were 12.5% below their level in 1998, partly due to labor shedding, labor productivity during the same period increased by a massive 70%. Poverty has emerged as a major problem under neoliberalism. Official statistics put the poverty rate at 18%, which was more than double this rate in rural areas. During this era, the neoliberal era, policymakers have hardly mentioned wealth distribution, income distribution. Uh, concluding my remarks in the first round, I must emphasize two points. First, my discussion so far should not be taken as a total negation of improvements in social and economic life under neoliberalism. My criticism was leveled against the broad contours and direction of change during this period. Second, my assessment should not be taken to mean that everything was perfect under the, under the previous interventionist import substitution regime. I simply wanted to show that the neoliberal model that replaced it has worsened some of the key economic and social indicators, let alone generating an overall improvement. My remarks should therefore be taken as a call for a radical rethinking of neoliberal economic policies implemented since 1980. Now, when I was an undergraduate student uh, at Warwick University years ago, there was a course called Feudalism uh, to uh, Communism. That was the title of the course. Nowadays, perhaps it's called Feudalism to uh, neoliberalism. I don't know. I uh, I'm not up to date on that. But, you know, students were a little puzzled when they received the final examination booklet because it said feudalism to communism, time allowed three hours. So <laughs> in, in this case, you know, this is my story. You see, uh, Turkish economic performance since 1980, time allowed 21 minutes. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> Well, Secret, thank you very much, and I am sorry for 
emphasizing that you have to do all of liberalism in 21 minutes. But you have to grant him that he's done a very good job, and I thought it was a very detailed, very comprehensive evaluation of, of the performance of the Turkish economy for in the last three decades. We now have Asaf Savashakar, who will offer us another perspective, and I am also curious to see to, to what extent and where it will differ. Asaf. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, uh, it's, uh, it's very nice being back uh, at LSE. Uh, I was among you in 1969, 1970. I was actually up here in, seven, in 2001 or two uh, with Darish. Uh, it's always nice to be back. Uh, I'll continue with Professor Chances' last remark. Uh, 20 minutes, 31 years, that's 40 seconds per year. Uh, if you include any future or any back, it goes down to 30 seconds. So we have a chairman, which is uh, you know, going to uh, give us some problems. Uh, it's very strict with time. No, you know, I mean, should allow a bit more, I think. People should, should some freedom, neoliberal sort of attitude. Uh, I'm... Uh, I'm uh, Am I a neoliberal? I don't know. Uh, maybe you will have to decide on that. Am I anti-neoliberal? I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm that either. Uh, I, I find neoliberalism a bit difficult to define, a sort of a catchword which covers too many, too many things. But as it was in there, I thought I'll, I'll have to say something about it in the beginning. You know, sort of. Uh, I will not repeat the slides. Uh, there you see. Uh, my things. Uh, I, I have a tendency to look at it as a sort of a, a disagreements over policies. I think most people agree on the causes of growth. I mean, especially uh, uh, since the uh, one of the hopefully a future Nobel laureate alumni of LSE, Ajemoldo, the kind of work he's doing, sort of gives us an idea about the meta-economic, the non-economic parts of it are important and their interaction with the thing. But basically, what we're talking about is the role of the private property versus state property, uh, the market versus planning industrial policy, uh, export orientation, import orientation, or it's just really a policy. It's, I, I like to think of it as a policy matter, and some of us sort of like some of the policies in this case. The neoliberals will probably prefer those policies who are here on the left. Uh, and you know the uh, anti-neoliberals will prefer those policies who are more on the on the on the right sort of story. Uh, uh, the uh, our story, uh, you know, we mustn't forget, uh, uh, is not happening now. I mean, our story goes back to the 1970s. That's when, uh, you know, that's what we're talking about. 1970s. It was a different epoch. Many people here uh, don't, don't know that once upon a time, Japan was rising and cultural revolution uh, was China. Nobody had ever seen something made in China in the 70s, you see. Nowhere in the world. Made in China was unheard of, of situation. Now there was the Soviet Union uh, and whatnot. So it was a, it was a different epoch. Uh, and what, what we may call neoliberalism is actually a set of objectives, uh, free enterprise, globalization, monetarism, 
you know, still dear to us, versus Keynesianism, of course, and fiscal conservatism, and they implied a set of changes in, in the, both in the structure of the overall economy and also in the policies uh, which, uh, uh, which sort of supported these, these, these structures which involved more or less more private sector, less state, definitely, um, hopefully less rent-seeking activity, uh, better resource allocation, etc. So this is what we were talking about. Uh, the policies were straightforward. Uh, you know, you were advised uh, to increase external competition at home through less protection or abroad through realigning your exchange rate through a competitive exchange rate. You could either protect it domestically or abroad, your, your, your industrial sector. Uh, you could improve resource allocation by privatization, by deregulation. Uh, and FDI, of course, foreign direct investment was, was very dear. It was going to be a major engine of this transformation. Uh, financial stability was key, was vital financial stability. And to get financial stability, you get to have strong banks, and in order to get strong banks, you know, uh, you better have capital account uh, liberalization, you know, convertibility of your currency was key to this, to this process. And then there was price stability. I mean, there was a sine qua non, there was a must. You had to have uh, price stability, which meant budget discipline, low public debt, tight monetary policy. It's, it's, it's important to keep these in mind because we can then look at Turkey and see which one Turkey did and which one didn't and why. Uh, setting up criteria are always nice because it allows you to to, to, to check you know uh, sort of a, this is a sort of a, a checklist uh, sort of thing uh, theory was nice the problem is implementation it's very difficult to get all these things done at once these things take time you know, structural takes time. You know, somebody has to set priorities. Who's going to do it? And then the political economic, the political economy of change fascinates me. You know, who is for change? Who is against it? Who resists it? Uh, what are the kind of coalitions that are going to be formed domestically and abroad? Uh, obviously, this is a fascinating. There's going to be vested interests. There are going to be privileges, people who lose their privileges, who lose their wealth, who lose their the way of making money. Uh, we have prejudices, we have ideologies, beliefs, uh, mentalities, and technically there are many problems too. It's not it's easy to say do it, but then once you decide to do it, all of a sudden you find that technically there are, there are full, full of problems. So you're going to get polit political coalitions of one kind or another, and you know, we can always think of conspiracies too. I mean, there is a sort of a center somewhere, usually the Washington IMF World Bank and, and whatnot. I personally believe in the importance. I mean, one of the themes here is that in this talk is that uh, a domestic constituency for change is very important. So domestic politics, the political, political economy, looking at what happens domestically is, is, is I think, is very important too. Uh, that's why I started with the, with the checklist. Uh, all these things will not be done at the same time. So, you know, we must understand how things, how Turkey proceeded on, the, on this previous 
uh, previous sort of checklist sort of thing. And, and that, that will, that, that's one of my themes. And I, I find this interesting uh, and may disagree with some of your, your uh, opinions uh, or analysis, uh, including Shevket and, uh, and, uh, and Fikret. A uh, brief overview of Turkey. Uh, first, no doubt, there was a change in paradigm in Turkey. Uh, there's no doubt. And the date is clear in the 80s. Is it 1980? There I disagree with most of my friends. I think the period between 1980, the 24th of January 1980, and the elections in 1983 is a simple IMF-type uh, stabilization program. It's no program of, of, of structural change. As a matter of fact, the military, once they, they feel confident enough about the economy, uh, get rid of Özal and put in place Adnan Bashar Kafolu, whom you know, if you don't, you may learn, is not exactly the symbol of change towards neoliberal policies on the oil, quite a new current. So it's not 1983 which triggers it. That's a stabilization. I'll show you a few figures about the need of stabilization, a few graphs in a moment, but let's keep that in mind. So the change is initiated by ANAP government, by Azal. And it's, it's, it's slow. Professor Chen says has given some of these, these arguments, uh, and it has many contradictions. And it's the, the period of change is actually short. It comes with a rapid reversal. There is a reversal, policy reversal, actually, at the, at the end of 1980s, which is, which is interesting. So it's high, high, high inflation, loose monetary fiscal policies, uh, uh, so the stabilization part is not there. Financial uh, stability part is not there. There's no privatization, 1980s, no 1990s, and there's no FDI. So the picture is, 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 uh, is, is not a that clear, that kind of that clear of a thing. Okay. Uh, uh, there is a, a, a puzzle, sort of, that's the, uh, and Shans has all talked about it, it's the capital account liberalization. Everybody in the IMF and the World Bank advises against it. They send committees, they send teams out to Turkey telling Özal not to do it, but Özal does it. It's an important thing because that, that's, that gives you an idea about the kind of framework in which policy is undertaken. Uh, it, it, it lost, Turkey lost 1990s, as was clear from what was said before, but the process of change gained momentum in the 2000s. And I claim it's still incomplete. I agree with Professor Chances. Taking stock, where are we now? Is it a success story? Or shall we wait? <laughs> well, I think the, the jury is still out. It may end up by being a success story, but it's may, uh, you know, it's not guaranteed, but it, it, it could well be. Uh, there are important achievements, as already mentioned. Turkey became a very open economy, member of, uh, in custom union with the biggest single market, at least in the region, Europe, uh, and without subsidies from Europe for that matter, financing the, process, the transition itself. Um, no subsidies, no help from, not, not like Greece and whatnot. I'll come back to Greece in a moment, with a very diversified product base, with a very diversified market base, with good physical and institutional infrastructure. I was reading about India in the last 
economists about Indian roads and telephone and electricity. Uh, with healthy public finances, nowadays very important, and a banking sector. In turn, Fikret has mentioned the, uh, the, uh, the, the fragilities involved. It's first and foremost a deficit, external deficit, very low private saving, low participation, serious trouble at the employment, employment front, and obviously the income distribution and safety net uh, issues that, that, that you, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with. Now, I will, at this point, you know, too much words. I like graphs, we're statisticians. Now, uh, you know, I, I told already Shevket that I'll disagree with him. He uses uh, Angus Madison. I use the pen tables. These are three countries that I picked up. You can see why I picked them up. Because your GDP relative to the US can either go up or can go down or can stay still. You have one example of going down, Argentina. The other example of going up, Korea. And the third example is Turkey. Stays at the same place. The intriguing thing is that the performance from 53 to 79 is not any different than the performance from 80 to 2000. There's no difference. I mean, it's something to look at it. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's, that picture tells us. Now, obviously, we must add some humor into this thing. So the next slide looks at another period through another database. That's the period 1998 to 2010. This time it's the World Development Indicators. But instead of looking at percentage of US, we're looking at it as a percentage of Turkey. It's, it's simple because those who rise means they're growing faster. When it falls, it means growing slower than Turkey. And the slide is very interesting. Argentina stays put in both periods from 79, from 98 to 2003, and 2000 to 2010. Korea rises up to 2003, but falls after 2003. 2003 is, a, is, 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 you'll find, if you look at data, is the critical year. Something seemed to happen in Turkey after 2003. Now, Greece is there because they're our neighbors, you know, and we like them, and, uh, you know. Uh, and, uh, and I'm waiting uh, for World Bank to publish the 2011 and 2012 data. Uh, I think that the, the trend will be even more accentuated. I mean, it'll, be, it'll, it'll even be stronger. Uh, next slide looks at Turkish trade. That's share of goods and services in GDP, again, World Bank data. Uh, and the, 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 the first two columns gives you an idea about why Turkey had problems with what sort of story, you know. I mean, exports at 5% of GDP, total exports. And you see what has been achieved in the 80s, tripling of exports in GDP, and in the 90s it continues, and 2000s it continues too. So there is a success story in the opening up of the Turkish economy. With a high price, yes. But there's no doubt about it. You can see here the success story. And you also see how bad things had gotten in the 1970s. Uh, this I will skip for save some time. 
Uh, the next, obviously, is Turkish inflation. <laughs> this is consumer inflation in Turkey. Its peak for the last 30 odd years, as you can see, is 1979, 1980. So, uh, you know, Turkey didn't change model in the middle of a model which worked. It had to do something with this inflation. You have to do, with those exports, you had to do something. And, and, and then, but the rest of the story is interesting. We, we, we've, we've sort of seen as one pillar uh, price stability, and the post-1980 period is not exactly price stability. It reaches back to, to the similar levels, 1978 levels in 1995, which is obviously which needs to be explaining why. One of the, one of the things enigmas about Turkey, that which not many people ask nor answers, is that this is a country which liked high inflation but disliked hyperinflation and low inflation. It's rare. Usually, countries which face this kind of inflation end up in hyperinflation. Or they bring it down. Turkey for 30 years, high inflation, no hyperinflation, no low inflation sort of story. Uh, and you see how it, how, how it behaves. Uh, enough pictures. Let's get back to the word. I got five more minutes. I'm not so sure about that. I think there's going to be some bargaining. Because in any way, uh, it's more than five. Four. No. Four. Four. Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, I said some of this. So I mean, this sort of just summarize. Uh, I'll make this available also. The slides uh, for those of you who are interested. Uh, I think the, the 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 key is is 1990s. The populism, the lost decade. The, you've seen the volatility of 1990s. What happened there? Uh, I mean. Clearly, uh, the, the uh, current account liberalization, uh, the capital account liberalization was an instrument of this populism. I explained it through fracticide in the right, Mr. Demiral versus Mr. Azal, and the, the inner fight leading to populism and whatnot. But we don't, I don't have the time for that, but those of you, uh, but the, the puzzle in that period is not populism, which, which we can explain by more or less sensible political economy, but is the custom union. Uh, in, in 1995, I mean, you know, how in, a, in a, such a chaotic situation uh, Turkey decides to enter the custom union, Europe, European Union, is still a puzzle to me. It's, it, it shows how politics can overrule economics, economic interests, and everything, even, even short-term uh, short politics. Uh, the second phase uh, uh, is uh, after 2000, obviously. This, this Ten-year decade ended with, uh, with a catastrophe, uh, and uh, again, similar to, and 70s, uh, and we had, again, a disinflation program, this time with the IMF. More structural demands, Dervish, you probably know, you heard about it, and uh, uh, again, one of the nice things about this, that it was the IMF which finally caused the financial crisis. After all, IMF ruled the economy, and the financial crisis happened under it. So you know, this gives you an idea about how bad they're at, at, at running an economy, uh, the IMF people. Uh, and uh, the electorate punished anybody who was involved, so we got the new government. AKP is, a, is, an, important element, uh, is an important player in this. Uh, 
It's friendly toward business and market and globalization. It's instinctive, instinctively conservative in fiscal policy. It has much better management, public, public management, and it was comfortable with the existing road mode, such as uh, IMF and EMU. Uh, the result, that's interesting, has been the result of success has been a total failure. Uh, the curse of success, or the curse of stability, I call it, not oil. Those of you who know about the Dutch sy syndrome or the curse of oil are familiar with it. The more the economy was transformed, the bigger Turkish external deficits became. So we ended up in a sort of a very, very interesting and very funny situation. Maybe instead of uh, using my second eight minutes, maybe I can okay. finish it now in five, six minutes, and then, right. okay, we'll, 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 yeah, you know, now that I go, I keep going. First thing, uh, first, first, this, this, this is the sort of uh, fiscal effort that Turkey did. These are real, uh, I don't have it, this is uh, Uçer and uh, his wife, uh, that's his calculations. Uh, real deficits of the public sector went from minus 15, 20 at the end of the decade to something like plus six in 2005, 2006 period. That's a 20% roughly adjustment in fiscal position. That's a 20% of GDP fiscal effort. Why didn't the Turks revolt, didn't take to the streets? How could they accept it as such? This tells us a lot about the, the, the political economy of fiscal adjustment too, uh, uh, which results in, 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 in very favorable debt dynamics, as you can see from 2001, at 55%, net public debt is now 25%, which is the lowest among big economies in the European region, or and many other regions for that matter. Uh, I told, told, talked about FDI flows. This shows you that there was very little FDI in the 80s, $2 billion, 0.3% in the 90s, and a lot of FDI in 2000s, and most of it in 2003 and 2007 period. So actually, neoliberalism is a 20, 21st century phenomenon in a sense, but only in a sense because of the current account deficit. Again, there, 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 there's the thing. Uh, this is privatization, privatization revenues. As you can see, hardly anything came in during Özal. 86 to 2002 is $6 billion, 0.2% of GDP. 2003 to 2007 is $22 billion, 9% of GDP. So you see when privatization happened. It's again after 2003 that we see privatization or any meaningful scale happening. Now, on the puzzle of the current account deficit, my position has been, and Shevket knows it, I made a, I made a presentation here, uh, before is, is, is the interest rate policy. Monetary policy is the cause. These are real interest rates paid. The, the red line is the real interest rates de facto, ex post, paid by the Treasury, its own calculations on an annual average basis. Real interest rate of 25% in 2003, over 15% in 2004, and 5, 10%, 6. The other, the sticks, are the real interest rates you get if you kept your money, if you lent on a daily basis overnight to the CB, taking Turkish lira risk, exchange rate risk, on a one night at a time, you could get 22% real interest rate in TL terms 
50% in dollar terms because appreciation of the yields. I mean, it was this obscene high interest rate policy, which, in my opinion, explains the, the current account deficit. Uh, I'll skip that. I don't have time. The next challenge. Uh, this is what Chancellor has alluded, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure he's going to give you a more complete, complete uh, proposal uh, than that. It, what I see is that, uh, uh, you know, there has been a change in policy, finally, in, uh, uh, after the, the, the crisis in 2010. The economy grows fast. Nyanimous spirits, Turks are very willing to take risks, borrow, spend, take, make investments. The fiscal position is excellent. There's nothing we can say about it. But 10% of GDP is the, the external deficit. You know, 10%. It's, it's not sustainable. No large economy Turkish size has ever had been able to do that. I mean, if you're uh, 500,000 people or a million, you may get away with it. You two hotels built to sort of cover your... Uh, your uh, foreign exchange deficit, but not 75 billion, 80 billion, 100 billion dollar levels. So there has been a change in policy. Low interest rates to discourage capital flows, uh, trying to help depreciation of the TL uh, and, and whatnot. Now we're, we're, we're right at that policy moment in Turkey. We're right at the policy moment. The markets, the financial markets, London included, was not very happy about it. They've been fighting tooth and nail. Obviously, uh, it's, the depreciation of the currency is bad news for all, all non-tradable income, which includes us too, in a sense. I'm not exactly an exporter. Uh, but, uh, and uh, the jury's out here. We don't know. They're trying to get a soft landing. And there, there are signs of also industrial policy. So maybe you know, that takes me back to, the, to, to, to one of the earlier slides, and these are the current account trends. See, uh, uh, 1994 to 2000, the, uh, before financial uh, income, interest payments, etc., Turkey had a surplus. So, you know, it's 2003-10, and especially second quarter, 2011, that you see, Kronagam uh, deficit moving up towards 10%, and a primary deficit, really, a huge primary deficit uh, taking hold. And, uh, you know, uh, if, if, if I go back to my uh, slide, uh, do I have one more minute? Still incomplete, yeah. Uh, you know, and. Uh, and uh, maybe, maybe either that or, you know, the jury's still out. It could well be now, to, to a large extent, I think, whether this, this will turn into a success story will depend on the success of current policies to change the distribution or the, uh, the oh, what's the exact word for it? I don't, I, I don't recall now. There's a, there's a central bank has a word, rebalancing, I'm sorry. The rebalancing of domestic and external demand. A lot will depend on that, which means that Turkey will move towards a more export orientation, which will fit in with what Chances has said about more industry, et cetera, et cetera, and which will also fit in with more uh, employment, et cetera. Don't expect Turkey to be uh, the next China. Uh, I don't think we'll ever get to under th that kind of currency undervaluation or that kind of a labor market 
uh, facility, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But, uh, uh, but certainly, uh, uh, you know, if this process can bring uh, the uh, current account into reasonable levels, current account deficit, maybe even small surpluses sort of story, then we might be able to call it success. Otherwise, as I've said, you know, as you and I, it's too early to tell. Thank you very much. Asaf, Asaf, thank you very much. Uh, I'm glad you put a good deal of emphasis on the political dimension. And uh, you will agree that, um, at least I observed a, a good deal of agreement between Asaf and Fikret. There. <laughs> but there were also disagreements. So I. Um, that's, that's in the nature of things. But so I want to, before I open the floor to your questions and responses from our two speakers, I want to give a, a seven, eight minutes to Fikret. You said ten. Ten, ten, okay. Seven, eight minutes. So he can uh, talk a little bit about the future, but also perhaps respond to some of the disagreements with uh, Professor Akat. Okay. Uh, when we were having a little conversation with Professor Akat before the meeting, uh, he said, "If we don't, you know, be polemical, it will be very boring for the, you know, audience." Uh, I said that, you know, the best that I could do to summarize, to be in line with the topic of today's uh, meeting, uh, that I should, you know, emphasize the main, uh, main points in a very systematic uh, way in, in the course of 20 minutes. But since he raised uh, certain uh, points and referred to me in name, I think I should, you know, respond. Uh, uh, some of the things I think we should get, you know, straight right at the beginning. I don't think, you know, we have any disagreement. We shouldn't have any disagreement about what is right and what is left. Now, I, I strongly object, you know, any inclination towards, you know, neoliberalism being classified uh, as left. Uh, I think, you know, at least we should, we should preserve, you know, what, what is left and what is right. Things have changed so much, but, but not, not as much as that. Also, uh, he said 1970s China, USSR, etc. Okay, I am not here to defend, you know, the human rights record of both countries. But don't forget that Chinese, Chinese success, like the Turkish export success in the 1980s and thereafter, was due to, to a lot of the industrial policies that happened before 1980. So we should not reject the continuity that exists in economic policies, like everything else in life. Uh, also, USSR, of course, talking about USSR these days uh, is something, something like a close to being a dirty word. But don't think, I mean, don't, you know, forget that their record on what we are talking about, their so uh, social record, socioeconomic policies, unemployment uh, record, poverty record, income distribution record. I mean, okay, we should distinguish their human rights record that we are not in a position to defend, but their other records. Now people look about, talk about poverty without talking about labor market, without talking about income distribution, wealth distribution, etc. That's why we cannot make much, much headway in that direction. You cannot talk about these things without, you know, uh, talking about distribution uh, policies. So the World Bank can try very hard, but, but if it does not 
not you know, take into account wealth distribution, income distribution, fails to link you know, poverty income distribution with the labor market, you cannot go very, very far. And I'm not even talking about you know, the international relations we have in the absence of the USSR. Okay, I'm not here to defend them, as I say, I underline that. Uh, it's a pity that socialism has, has occurred in such a country which does not obey uh, the human rights uh, aspects. Now, uh, also, you know, we should uh, be, we are not for change per se. Direction of change is very important. And we cannot praise, you know, that has been change, that has been transformation. But my emphasis has been on the direction of change, in which direction. Okay, privileges, but whose privileges? It is, you know, Econ 101, isn't it? For whom? That's, I mean, we should not lose that perspective at all. Um, Professor Akat, I think, is, is failing to, you know, notice uh, that uh, these neoliberal policies is a package, okay? They are mutually reinforcing uh, instruments contained in it. So he says that, okay, the military government brought, you know, someone who opposed uh, you know, us up, but things did not change. Things did not change at all. Don't forget that when that happened, Turkey was under the strict control of, of uh, the World Bank. You see, we always talk about the IMF, but it was the World Bank, the structural adjustment policies, 1980 to 1985, very strict conditionality. Do away with industrial projects, foreign trade, liberalization, financial. So it was very strictly controlled. So, I mean, person A comes, person B goes, it doesn't change. Okay, 1989, capital account liberalization. I mean, people from Washington, D.C. might have come to Turkey to, to advise differently, but we all know that Turkey, you know, it was just the timing of it, perhaps, they, 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 they might have objected. But capital account liberalization is very much a part and parcel of, of neoliberal policies. I mean, it's no wonder that most countries will go in that direction sooner or later. It is not if, it is when. It is part of it. You see, it has gradually, I've tried to emphasize that it has come to all aspects of economic life. It was foreign trade liberalization first, industrial privatization, it was, you know, capital account liberalization, health, education, agriculture. It came to, to all aspects of uh, economic and social life. So it was just, you know, capital account liberalization is a key aspect, key component uh, of it. Um, so success. Professor Akat talks about success, but I mean, we know better uh, in the sense that, you know, success in economics, whose success, for whom, this is very, very important. We cannot just look at the macroeconomic indicators and then say Turkey has grown, but what's the effect of this growth? On, on whom the burden has fallen? Is it a coincidence that, that you know, trade unions uh, are losing key members? Is it a coincidence that real wages are falling? Functional income distribution is, is becoming highly unequal. I mean, it is, it is, you know, the direction is very important and whose success? Now, Professor Akas says, uh, well, inflation 1970s. Okay, but there was very rapid inflation in the post-1980 period as well, 2001 crisis, 1994 crisis, there was very high rate. I mean, Turkey's inflation record post-1980, chronic inflation, rapid inflation, and variable inflation, okay? And I, I, I gave you the averages, and much higher than the pre-1980 uh, pre period. So it wasn't, I mean, there wasn't a new model at all uh, post-1989. Uh, uh, it was just a con continuity. 
so if 1970s, I mean, there was heavy inflation, we know, you know, even uh, introductory students of economics would know that if you have inflation, that's short-term instability. We know we have the tools uh, for that. But, you know, I mean, if there is inflation, you don't change the whole course of economic policy. You don't change the structure of the economy. Um, and uh, that's what happened, okay? So, I mean, why? What was wrong technically with, with import substitution, a country trying to industrialize? Is there any other way that we know of if you look at the history? Even the first industrial revolution, if you look at it, and the role of the state, industrialization, I mean, look at the recent, uh, more recent cases, China uh, uh, and, and Korea, etc. Very, very heavy state intervention. It is not very easy. So did we have to uh, throw the baby with the bathwater? You know, there was inflation, but, but we you know, changed all our uh, policies. Um, so uh, that's, I think, very uh, important. So when we talk about transformation, uh, you see, we should always uh, look at uh, in which uh, direction. Now, 1980-2000, a long period. Of course, there were sub-periods uh, within it. Uh, I didn't want to go into the, you know, AKP versus the others. I mean, that's a, I mean we can debate uh, what, what happened under uh, AKP rule uh, as well. But, you know, I looked at it as, as, a, as a whole, the whole uh, period. There were sub-periods. But I also think that it's not sustainable, you know, the, the successes that Turkey has had in recent years under uh, the, the present government, I don't think it is uh, sustainable, and I don't think it has been uh, stable. Now, privatization. I mean, we've seen, you know, things have changed so much, you see, that uh, politicians have gone on television and on mass media and said, oh, we have managed to sell so many of our state economic enterprises, privatization revenue has been... In I mean, I totally object to, to that kind of, you know, attitude. Uh, it is like selling family silver, okay? You sell it once for all, you close your deficits uh, partly, but then, you know, you are, you are without, without those. You have all the, you know, retailers in, in Turkey, uh, foreign investors, uh, let us say. It was like, you know, fire uh, sale, you know, the economy enters a crisis 2001, very cheap, you know, currency de depreciating, and then, you know, uh, people, you know, sell these uh, assets. Uh, so a lot of the foreign investment that we boast about, uh, basically, it is mergers and acquisitions, and also real, real estate. So we should also be very watchful, you know, not all open doors uh, for direct foreign investment, but where, which sectors they are coming, and what conditions they are coming, and what are they, they are bringing uh, with, with them. That's, I think, uh, very, very important. Now, uh, Professor Akat is, okay, uh, check it, one minute. Last comment, I'll, I'll forget about my, you know, other presentation about the future. But, um, you know, Professor Akat talks about fiscal position, okay. You know, if you look at it at the aggregate, uh, you find, you know, fiscal position is improving. You might just, you know, look at that and simply say it's a good thing. But, you know, our duty as economists is to disaggregate fiscal position tells a great deal, you see, uh, from, from a political economy point of view. You know, if you look at the tax structure in Turkey, two-thirds is indirect taxation. And we all know indirect taxation is regressive, okay? On whose shoulders tax incidence, we cannot talk about the fiscal position without tax incidence. Uh, and also government expenditure, the other side of the fiscal position. Government uh, expenditure incidence, who benefits from government expenditure? Is it the village schools 
or big universities in big towns? Is it the village clinics or big hospitals in big towns? We cannot think about, we cannot talk about fiscal position without you know, looking into such, such uh, issues. Uh, so, I mean, needless to say, I was going to say, if I you know, was uh, going to uh, stick to the original plan, you see, I was going to uh, advocate that you know, Turkey uh, should, uh, I mean, no way for Turkey apart from completing its industrialization uh, process. So basically, you might you know, think that I am being too optimistic uh, about you know, uh, pushing industrialization at this day and age. But I remember, you see, when you um, uh, look at hotel rooms and, and you know, halls of residence at the back of our you know, doors, there used to be these uh, fire notices. It used to say, in case of fire, six points, okay? Well, the, you know, uh, five uh, after the first one, very familiar ones. Don't use the lifts, you know, close the doors behind you, call the fire brigade, etc. But the first one, which made us uh, smile a little bit every time we saw it, I think was the most sensible. It said, in case of fire, shout fire. So that's what I, I was trying to do, you know, in a very, you know, simple way, perhaps murmuring a little bit, but that's the message. Thank you very much. Well, thank, thank you, Fikret. I want to thank actually both of our speakers because, <laughs> because they, they offered us a very comprehensive, very detailed assessment. I, I, I think um, we should be grateful about the range of issues that they were able to discuss in this hour. Now I would like to open the floor to your comments, questions, and I would like to take a few before I will give the floor back to our speakers. First question always requires. Yes, Kortelush, yes. We can we can have the yes the microphone and if you want to uh, introduce yourself and uh, my name is Kurtulush Gemici I teach sociology at the National University of Singapore uh, my question will be to both speakers uh, about the post 2000 2001 period after basically after the 2001 crisis there is there has been a success story to a certain extent it has been a period of high growth but at the same time. The fragility that we have observed in 1980s and 1990s, especially with regards to the fiscal position and public debt, uh, what seems to be happening is that the debt structure, the external debt structure of Turkey has changed dramatically. And right now, the private sector and the households are under a very heavy debt burden. So uh, that aspect of the Turkish transformation, the economic transformation, I, didn't, I don't think I have heard much about that. So I would like to hear a little bit about that aspect of the fragility, what the speakers, what do they think about that? Okay, all right. Other? Then, okay, would you please introduce yourself? Yes. Yeah, I'm Deniz Yükseker from Koç University in Istanbul. Um, I have a question to Professor Şenses. In your work, I know that you differentiate uh, periodically uh, between the Washington consensus period and the post-Washington consensus period in terms of that 30 years of neoliberal experience. Um, now, I mean, can you comment on how that 
in what ways that would um, uh, change your analysis here for the, let's say, last uh, 10 years, uh, for instance, in terms of increasing what we might call social spending? Thank you. Okay. Other? Yes, the lady here, please, the microphone. Would you briefly introduce yourself, please? Yeah. Uh, my name is Ayşegül, Ayşegül Kayoğlu, PhD candidate in economics at LSE. Uh, my question is actually for both speakers. It's maybe out of the subject, but I just wonder their views about central banks positioning, especially after the 2008 crisis. Do you think they were it was successful in this case or not? Thank you. Okay. All right. Other? Okay. Um, I would like to give the floor first to Asaf and then to Fikret Chances. And I would like to ask them to be brief. Perhaps we will be able to do one more round. More questions, sure. Yes, okay. Yes, it would be nice to have more questions. Um, the, uh, the obviously, the, uh, there, is an, uh, there is an enigma in what happened in the last 10 years. Uh, in the sense that, as Fikret has pointed out, uh, the, the distribution of income is much worse than it was before. Now, we know from theory and practice that when the distribution of income is getting worse, saving rates should go up. Private saving rates should go up, isn't it? I mean, uh, the Turkish private saving rates is plummeting. I don't know how we're going to, something is wrong there. Either the theory is wrong, the more uneven your income distribution, the more you consume. So it's the rich who consume more than the poor sort of story. I don't know. Well, the theory is right. We're measuring either consumption or something wrong. You know, so there's a problem there. This, the, 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 this is reflected, this high levels of consumption is reflected in, in debt figures, obviously. Uh, we have an idea about the causality. We know what, what caused the increase in private debt. Uh, as public move from, the public sector move from huge real deficits, which had to be financed mainly at the domestic financial markets, uh, the banks had ample savings which, for which they had to find customers. So they turn around to, to, to the public, both you know, small, medium-sized enterprises, corporate sector, and the consumer, and they were very successful. And what I call animal spirits, Turks seem to you know, be willing to, to borrow, obviously. They, they, they're not that shy about borrowing. Uh, they, they have a sort of a, the more confident they are about the future, the more they seem to be willing to be borrowing. And finally, there's the argument, which is often voiced in the, uh, in the financial sectors, that Turkish uh, household debt and corporate debt are very low by international standards, uh, which is true. Well, total, total outstanding bank loans in Turkey is less is less than 50% of the GDP. So clearly that's the total private debt, more or less. 
you know, and that's that's very low, as you can. So, balance sheet wise, there seems to be less worry. I don't like that that argument, frankly, because that argument uh, looks at the average. Usually, balance sheet problems appear not on the averages, but are actual on those bad balance sheets. The average could be very healthy. Europe, the euro region has an excellent uh, debt to GDP GDP ratio, has a very low uh, budget deficit. The problem is that that's the average. Then you have Greece. And the whole thing gets to where it is. So that will be my thing. I mean, there's a longer explanation, but I don't think we'll go, we'll go into it. The Central Bank after 2008, uh, uh, you know, telegraphically, in 2008 and 2009, it was a catastrophe. The Central Bank, the central bank was, 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 was a major cause of the big contraction in demand in an output that we've seen in 2009. And uh, it was just it's just as big a catastrophe. Monetary policy was just as bad as it was in the days of the previous administration between 2003 and 2006. So, but uh, you know, after 2010, that it, it you know in Turkey it takes time to understand things. I mean, you know, I mean there are rumors about the train passing by, etc., etc. And I think in 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 October, November 2010, some people in Ankara have finally understood there was a crisis, a major crisis happening in the world, and they decided to 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 to, to move from a tight monetary policy position to a to sort of loser monetary policy, which is not bad. I mean, you know, a year delay. It's not all that much. I mean, you know, so dear, you know, today was all that much. Thank you. Fikret, please. Uh, now, the question about external indebtedness. Uh, I think uh, the composition of uh, debt has changed. Private sector now is more indebted. You know, the highest uh, proportion of debt is private sector. But there, of course, there is a danger. You know. I mean, uh, because the corporate sector would go into, you know, a crisis uh, when there is, you know, these big exchange rate uh, changes, as it is happening uh, recently. So, you know, I, I would con- uh, connect that with the central bank question. You know, the central bank is facing a big dilemma these days because before the elections, uh, the currency was highly overvalued. Uh, a lot of people thought that it was valued to the extent of about 25-30%. So after the election, and so much about the central bank independence. You know, they, they had to wait. You know, post-election, you know, the correction was allowed. But then, of course, there is a difficulty of, you know, uh, to control the exchange rate depreciation. It got out of hand. Then, you know, you have to sell reserves. Then there is the trade-off. After all, economics is a science of trade-off. So the central bank is facing this dilemma. But again, connecting that with, that with uh, Denis Yüksekar's question about post-Washington consensus, you see, one of the aspects, you know, uh, 
institutions, independent institutions were introduced in Turkey in you know, post-2001, but how independent can they be in an environment like this? I mean, the government, you know, at the first opportunity, you know, wants to intervene in these institutions, and as we saw recently, uh, a lot of them, you know, I mean, the recent uh, changes uh, did away with their independence uh, to a large extent. So the central bank, again, you know, uh, is, is I think, very much affected by the political uh, environment. And the pub private uh, sector indebtedness, you pointed out, I think is also very important. A lot of people, you know, had, had several credit cards, etc. the consumption boom, and a lot of people fear, although there are, you know, some uh, steps, some measures taken uh, to control that, but still, you know, a lot of private sector indebtedness. Um, now, um, the post-Washington consensus, we, we, you know, uh, at one stage we thought uh, to write an uh, article titled Post-Washington Consensus in Action or Inaction uh, in Turkey because it never reached Turkey, you know. Uh, some aspects of it perhaps, uh, I think Deniz Yüksekar has in mind that there was some efforts in poverty alleviation measures, social policy, social spending, etc. Uh, okay, I, but, but I object to the fact that, as I you know, may, try to make it uh, clear, that you cannot really make much headway in poverty alleviation unless you, you know, just confine it to social policy. And social policy, you know, the advice, I mean, the poverty, you know, agenda in Turkey is very much co controlled by, you know, the Washington agenda. Okay, what, what does it involve? Social policy, okay, uh, but, but through NGOs, Okay, and in Turkey also uh, NGOs have been active in that, also municipalities. But you know there isn't much control. You see, there isn't a strategy, poverty alleviation strategy. So it's all you know, different people doing different things, but not transparent either. The main institution, you know, uh, in the uh, poverty field, I asked them how do you you know target your you know how do you identify who is poor? And they apparently have a formula, but they they don't tell me. You see, so basically uh, we need a poverty alleviation strategy, uh, and uh, to to you know make much headway, we should link it with the labour market more closely, and we should uh, link it with employment uh, creation, industrialization, etc. And also, most perhaps importantly, we cannot talk about this uh, without uh, equality of opportunity, uh, wealth distribution, income distribution. These are the missing links in, in poverty uh, analysis. Um, okay, I think I have uh, uh, answered uh, all questions. If not, we can, you know, after the meeting, perhaps I can tie in the results. All right. Um, we have a little bit of time left for. Uh, few more questions, a couple more questions. Chalak. Chalak there, Boğaziçi University, Istanbul. Um, I would like to say a few things about social policy. Um, um, as you know, the social policy, total social policy expenditures of the government, very difficult to measure. Um, as far as I know, OECD is the only uh, real uh, authority in terms of data. And uh, what they say is that social policy expenditures as percentage of GDP have increased from, in 2000, from about 6, 7, 8% around there to now uh, 12 to 14%. So that's a huge increase. Um, a lot of this comes from health um, expenditure um, due to the new um, health uh, care um, uh, uh, the, the reform and the new uh, structure of uh, 
health provision. Um, and uh, some of it comes from, as you said, uh, social assistance. But as far as I know, um, none of that figure uh, is due to NGOs or anything like that. I'm talking about this, the, the figure uh, refers entirely to government expenditure. And you know whether we like it or not, uh, and I certainly agree with you that it has to come together with, has to be uh, accompanied by, um, other kinds of things, such as employment creation, etc. But uh, the government does have some institutions about social expenditure. I mean, conditional cash transfers and uh, the uh, the green card, uh, which uh, is not only for health but also uh, other kinds of social assistance. Okay, that's one thing. The other thing is, I think both of you. Um, uh, minimized um, what I see to be, and I think what Kurtulish um, uh, implied, uh, to be the most immediate problem um, that might face Turkey in the next uh, year, um, which is the incredible increase in uh, private debt. It's like 35% to 40% over the last two or three years. Um, and, and, and Asaf said this wasn't high, it's very high, 50% uh, of the GDP. In the US, private debt is 60% of the GDP. It's, around, it's between nine and $10 trillion uh, with a GDP of 15, 16 trillion dollars. So this is, this is really amazing given the fact that credit cards and mortgage and um, other kinds of private uh, borrowing are not very uh, widespread in Turkey. Um, so um, I think the, 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 the chances are that if there is a downturn in the economy, there might be a crunch in the, um, in the, in the um, repayability of debt. And I think this is an immediate concern. Okay. At the back, can we have the microphone? Yes. Would you please identify yourself briefly? Thank you. My name is Bora. I'm a member of the Jumriyat Halk Party, the Republican People's Party. Um, we are talking about the Justice and Development Party's economic program uh, for the last eight, nine years in Turkey. Um, I would like to ask your comments about the, the alternative to these policies and the policies of the main opposition party in Turkey. Um, first of all, I would like to get your comments about our election manifesto. I'm sure you read about the election manifesto because we flagged up all these issues. Um, the issues about external deficit, uh, the issues about uh, low private saving and low employment and the wealth distribution. Um, we flagged up all these issues and it's quite consistent for the Republican People's Party since 2002 by uh, Kemal Dervish's coming to our party as well, 2002, 2007 and 2011. Uh, but we still couldn't um, persuade the Turkish people to vote for a social democrat alternative uh, against the policies of the AKP. That is one question, maybe a general comment will be very much appreciated. But also secondly, I think another big problem for the social democrats and especially the social democrats in Turkey, maybe a sectoral question, but the agriculture. Because the western social democrats uh, barely touch the agricultural policies and they, they never ever uh, support, um, apart from a limited example in France, to subsidize the agricultural sector. But in Turkey, we've got the dilemma, um, and AKP represents to leave that area, uh, comparing to Demirel, comparing to Özal, uh, quite straightforward and not to subsidize the agriculture and leave it to the market. 
And then the Turkish socialists or the Turkish social democrats has got the dilemma to answer that question. And I will very much welcome your comments right. on this as well. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, then we will have just very quick, yes, one, two, and then I will go back to our speakers for the last time. Please introduce yourself. Uh, hello, <clears throat> I'm, on the I'm also an alumnus of LSE, uh, European Institute, European Political Economy. I would like to ask about the uh, improvements in unrecorded economy, I mean, like, if I prevented that. Because when uh, Professor Akat's uh, comment about income distribution and consumption, income, increase of income distribution and increase of consumption at the same time, I, that's, that's what what's reminded to me. As, I mean, especially in Turkey, do you see a significant improvement in that? And I mean, obviously it should be better than uh, Greece. There's a tax administration where still they use uh, typewriters, but uh, what do you think about that? Thank you. Okay. And finally, yeah. please introduce yourself. My name is Ahmed. Um, I'm a PhD student at SOAS. Um, my question goes to both of the speakers. Um, you mentioned the historical, the stru structural transformation of the Turkish economy um, after the 1980, and um, you divided it into three parts, three phases, and Asaf divided it into two parts, two, two, two phases. Um, but, but when we look at the implementation of neoliberal policies, we see that, as you mentioned, um, the privatization of the state-owned enterprises has been late and slow in, Turk in Turkish case. Um, do you think that this happened because of the weak institutional mechanisms or legal weaknesses, I mean the, the weaknesses in the legal system or the policy priority, the second option, or the power relations or historical specificities of the Turkish society, I mean Turkish state, um, because what, what I get from your presentation is that, I mean, you underestimated the, the power relations and the relations of production in the, in the Turkish context. I mean, you mentioned the policy priorities and um, little bit talked about the institutional mechanisms, but you didn't mention the power relations or relations of production. I mean, what do you do? You relate the failure of Turkish economy to privatize SOEs because of the just policy priorities or institutional mechanisms or power relations or relations of production? Okay, thank you very much. So now I go back to our speakers for the last round, and we will begin with. Professor Akat. Uh, yes, thank you. Uchala, uh, we should check the figures. Uh, I think uh, household debt and private debt is confusing us. Uh, the U.S. figure is probably household debt. Uh, Turkish figure I quoted is private debt. In other words, it includes all the corporate debt, the COBIs and whatnot, household debt. So the the uh, and that's that's why it seems that's why it seems like total total U.S. private debt is I think about two and a half times or, or United Kingdom 
two and a half times GDP, sort of. Yes, yes, it's, it's more than twice GDP, private debt. Yeah, bank credit in terms, well, yeah, but I mean, you know, in Turkey, the, the, the banking is the only loan supplying, is lending institution, whereas in the U.S. you've got, you know, bond market, et cetera, et cetera, you know. Their, obviously, their, their financial wealth is also different, like, you, you know, in the U.S., I mean, they're compared. But let's check on that. Uh, I mean, I, I, to me, what I see from these figures, uh, and I can get you detailed figures on that, the, the household debt, on the average, is low in Turkey. So is the corporate, inc including you know small and large, etc. Again, compared to international standards, uh, which is also due to the fact that the financial sector is much small. Total deposits are also, total financial assets are much lower than 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 U.S. and, and U.K. And, and, and similar in Germany and similar countries. So, but you know, that's a that's a well-taken point. Uh, yes, I read, of course. Uh, uh, Faik uh, struck who, who sort of animated the the, uh, the preparation uh, was uh, uh, second in line to Dervish uh, in, at, the, at the Treasury. Though I mean I'm not so sure whether he should be considered an neoliberal or uh, or on the left. I mean that I'll, I'll, I'll let other people decide on that. I mean Fikret maybe will give his opinion on that. Uh, the program was excellent, was good overall, uh, but uh, it's deeds more than, you know, it's very difficult to convince people by talking about what you say, and you know, they have an image of you, and once they have that image of, you know, all the jokes about Jesus and whatnot, I'm sure you've heard, once that they have that image, it's just very difficult to, to pass the message across uh, that, you know, you're going to implement. Uh, CHP is, uh, is, is basically, there are two images. One is the, uh, the mid-90s, Demirat Prime Minister, you know, the Deputy Prime Minister, and the crisis of 1994, you know, before that it was this and 70s uh, sort of image, uh, which, and then you got the, the uh, more or less same family, isn't it, Ejevit, and the crisis of 2001. Uh, you know, so you'll have to put in more effort, you know, to explaining to people. But otherwise, I think the program was the program ma made sense for a change uh, coming from CHP. Uh, the agriculture is is yes is is a, is a touchy problem. Uh, I would probably both Fiket and I would think that the solution to, to the problems of Turkish agriculture. Mm -hmm is increasing job opportunities in the non-agricultural sector, which in turn, I presume we agree, can only happen with reasonable uh, value added and therefore wait for worker by an expansion, relatively faster expansion of the industrial base compared to service sectors. But, and I would continue, Pickett will probably disagree, this can be achieved only by some depreciation of the currency by a more export-oriented, not an export-oriented, but more export compared to this attitude and, and, and more export-friendly policies. But that's, that's, to me, 
the solution to the agricultural problem. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't seem to be uh, much chance. Uh, the, the informal economy is, is the size of the informal economy is very difficult to, to by definition, because it's informal, you, don't, you can't keep track of it, sort of story. But I don't think in the saving consumption, this, see the saving consumption GDP figures are calculated on the same basis. So whatever informal economy there is in one, there is in all of them. So the ratios shouldn't be, have an effect on the ratios. And whatever everything else, the current account deficit can be double-checked by exports of the countries which, from whom Turkey imports. And the current account deficit is there. So there is a surge in spending, I mean, you know, whichever we do. So once you agree that uh, there is a the income distribution is worse. And I, I should also mention that, I mean, something that Fikret has said, we should also point out, in this dilemma, there's another the enigma. Uh, the sort of uh, consensus is, if you, have, if you want to increase savings, tax consumption. Well, this is what we're doing to, to the limit. It's no longer possible to tax the cons to consumption in Turkey. Can't tax consumption anymore. The more we tax consumption, the more people seem to be consumed. The more you tax them, the more they spend. Sort of story. Doesn't make sense, uh, you know. So, we obviously we must look elsewhere to explain this enigmatic behavior. Uh, I mean, I think your question was more to Fikret than to me. So, uh, I'll skip. okay. Thank you. All right, Fikret, we turn to you. In regards to uh, Professor Kedar's uh, comments, I, I agree uh, with them. Uh, he brought new dimensions to both issues. I think, especially with regards to private debt, I think uh, it could be it could cause problems in the near future. Uh, with regards to uh, the question about uh, the main opposition party, uh, of course, like in all institutions, you know, we shouldn't generalize. There are inner uh, divisions. So what happened, I think, within the you know, uh, Social Democratic Party is that the Dervish side uh, has the upper hand now. You know, uh, Faik Östrak was in Dervish's uh, team. So a lot of other people were, are not so influential now within the party. So I was one of the 20, 25 economists who were invited you know, to the party before the elections uh, to comment on their strategy, economic strategy. And I you know, gave my opinion, you know, written and, and verbally there as well. I wasn't uh, totally impressed, you know, because it had the remnants of, you know, the neoliberalism. So I said that if you are a social democratic party, you know, you have to challenge this. I mean, other, there are other people who are following this agenda better than you, uh, so you don't have much of a chance. And then it came, I mean, out to be the election results, I think, you know, uh, confirmed this. But I think the real issue, you know, the left, I think, in, globally uh, is having uh, problems. So democracy, I think, the type of democracy, we again, you know, use this generic term, democracy, but it takes different forms, you see, in different places. So in Turkey, I think we have a democratic uh, deficit. So look at the mass media, you know, these days, you know. I mean, uh, if, if you are a government, you know, spokesman, you get a lot of coverage, but if you are in the opposition, not so much. So, you know, if I had the opportunity to give the full presentation, I had this, you know, message. I do not think that in a semi-industrialized country characterized by widespread poverty and inequality, weakening civil society organizations, most notably the trade unions, 
and poor human development indicators, much headway can be made towards democracy. I think this is what was, you know, we face in the uh, Turkish case. Uh, with regards to agriculture, actually, you know, at a later stage, uh, agriculture, you know, was also subjected to neoliberalism. So basically, trade liberalization and privatization of state enterprises within agriculture, uh, removal of subsidies, product subsidies and input subsidies. Uh, so, you know, main crops like sugar beet, tobacco, wheat, maize suffered from this a great deal. Transnational agribusiness, contract farming, all that, you know, penetrated into the agricultural sector. So just think about, you know, the rich save more, you know, if income distribution gets better. I mean, I think this is, I mean, there is this general, you know, message given in textbooks, marginal propensity to save of the rich is higher than, the, you know, the poor. But it, it depends where, which country you are talking about, who are the rich, you know, under what context they are, they are you know, uh, operating in the economy. So I, I don't think that follows in the Turkish case, especially in an open economy where there are the opportunities of capital flight. Um, now, privatization, I think power relations very, very important uh, there. In the Turkish case, it had to be creeping uh, privatization because Turkey had a very long history of state intervention. So state economic enterprises fulfilled a very important developmental role. Now, if you travel to the east of Turkey, for instance, you know, amongst the, you know, sea of poverty, you will see one enterprise there, you know, a sugar refinery, let us say, a cement factory, a growth pole, you know, around that people, you know, would, would, would take part in industrial activity, they are part of industrial organization, they are unionized, etc. And, uh, uh, you know, an element of modernization in those areas. So a lot of public opinion, you know, was, against, I think, at the beginning, uh, against privatization. So it had to be, you know, creeping privatization. First, you know, removing their, you know, investment, I mean, depriving them of investment opportunities, pricing policies, etc. So the public at large was prepared for a, for a sale, and the crisis, of course, came. There is no alternative, you know, dictum again. But, you see, my final message is that, you know, 30 years, is a short, is a long period, if you look at it, you know, just from this point on. But if you look at it from the perspective of history of economic thought, you know, 30 years is a very, very short period. So we should not be carried away too much with the there is no alternative, you know, uh, message, and then search for alternatives, because the direction of change is not, is not in, the, in the right way. There is indeed a fire. Thank you very much. I want to thank both of our speakers. I thought that this was a very, very comprehensive, very detailed, and very thoughtful discussion. Uh, I very much enjoyed it. I hope you did too. And I also, uh, I know, I am well aware that both of our speakers would have loved to offer more insights, except for my insistence that we cut it a bit short and, and, and at a reasonable time. And I want to thank you, the audience, uh, for the very good questions, as always. We get at LSE very good questions. And I want to thank you for your patience. It's been late. But uh, we had, a, I think, a very good evening of assessing 30 years of the Turkish economy. Thank you, and good evening.